0: Good morning, church. If you realize I haven't been around for three weeks, yes, I have not left church. I was in Manila taking my master's, starting my master's. Uh, There's something I need you to pray for me. I actually lost my jacket from seminary. It's the only proof that I actually went there. So could you please pray that Greg will return my jacket to me? (laughs) Anyway, it has been so good over there. It's been refreshing, meeting people, learning new things. Ah, But nothing beats ministering at home. I'm just so grateful today to be here. We are continuing this series, uh, Worth Living. And my part is to build on what Jason has done last week into chapter 2. Now, thank you, Jason. Such a wonderful job done, setting the groundwork. And if you remember, he mentioned that Paul planted the church in Thessalonica He was chased out after three weeks, and two years later, he wrote this letter, which is what we see here in 1 Thessalonians. Now, I want you to imagine this. If you, today, make an investment in a company, in three weeks, the CEO left and could not be found, what will happen to you? People will start talking, right? your mother will come to you, I told you already, don't invest. FD better. Or competitors will say, invest in me. I am better. Or the news will say, "Ah, this CEO is a scammer, blah, 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 blah. When Paul left the church after three weeks, he faced some form of criticism as well. People talk. So when Paul wrote this part in 1 Thessalonians 2, This particular part is kind of his response to some of these accusations. And it wasn't that he was insecure. Paul knew if he was discredited, the church that he built would be discredited as well. The gospel that he was preaching would have been discredited as well. And he did not want that to happen. And in this context, He defends his ministry and if we read this text through the lens of our series, it kinda gives us the marks of a worthy ministry or in other words, serving in a manner that is worthy. Now every nation is really big on serving. I would estimate at least 50% of the people sitting here serve in some form of way. If you are serving for the past two years, you will face some form of tension. On one hand, as we are recovering from the aftermath of the pandemic, inflation that we face, economic instability, and so on, there is more demands on our life than ever, right? We need to work harder, we are stressed, and so on. On the other hand, as we desire to grow as a church, the needs of the church grows as well. People from Puchong have to drive all the way to Satapa, to Bandarimbayu, to serve. So there's this tension. I want to serve sacrificially, but what about my own life? How can I serve without being burnt out? What makes a mark of a worthy ministry or good kind of serving? Is it the person who served the longest, the most sacrificial, the most talented, who created the greatest impact? Today's text, my desire, is, it is able to answer some of these questions. It may not come directly, but hopefully, as you allow the Spirit of God to work in you, the truth of the text coupled with the discernment of the Spirit will give you the wisdom that you can take back and apply in your own situation. So Father, as we come today, we serve because of you. And Father, you know the tension that we face. How much should we serve? How far should we go? Lord, we don't know the answer but enlighten us and give us the wisdom. Help us see what you see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you guys doing good? Let's jump right into the text. Verse one, for you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you was not in vain. Now you can see this phrase, for you yourselves know, or for you know, as you know, it keeps recurring throughout the passage. It's kind of like Paul saying, you already know. It's so obvious, it's so evident that what I'm saying here, you already know. I don't need to say it, but I'm saying it to remind you. And he says, that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not empty. There was character in it. There was substance. There was impact. Verse 2 onwards, it gives us a hint of the accusations that he received. Some of the people were saying because Paul had a police record, he was jailed in Philippi. He could not be trusted. Others were saying because Paul ran away, he was a coward. And if you see here in verse 2, Paul refutes both of these claims. He said, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated. Yes, I was shamefully treated. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. I'm not a coward. I'm not untrustworthy. My boldness comes from God. I really like this part of the passage. Many times, we seek to be comfortable. Right, I've met many many people, and they tell us I'm comfortable leading one life group. I'm comfortable serving this ministry. If we are always comfortable, why do we need bonus in God? I don't need bonus to be comfortable, right? And I was reflecting on this when I was in seminary. In my cohort, there were 27 nations. So every day I hear these crazy stories and wondering what I'm doing. I hear this guy is from Uganda. Did you know in Uganda, the average age of the country, not the church, yeah? The country is 15 years old. So this guy is about 20 plus maybe. He comes up on stage. He says, I'm the erudite. I'm the elder of the church. A whole generation of Ugandans were wiped out by HIV. So their age is very young. Now this guy, 20 plus, he's planting churches, he's starting foundations to help kids. Another guy, he comes from Myanmar. Myanmar is going through a military coup. And he said, every day I can hear grenades. I can hear shootings. And they're trying to do church in that kind of an environment. I have another friend who's from Vietnam. And he told us this statistic, it's very interesting. For the longest of time, Vietnam faced persecution. Police would come after them, they would be kicked out of their families. And this guy says, if police come, I will preach to the police. There was that boldness in him. In fact, he said, when the persecution reduced, the number of Christians actually reduced. When the persecution increased, the numbers of Christians actually increased. There is something when we are put in a spot where we need to depend on boldness in Him. And I'm asking myself, have I stepped out enough? And I hope you can ask yourself this question. If you are an introvert and you love coming early to church and sitting in the corner, soaking God's presence, that's great, but I promise you, your experience of church will be very different if you join the usher team, you join the prayer ministry and you start interacting with people. If you love a community, you have so many friends in church, you are so comfortable, you share life, you cry together, you encourage each other, that's great. We love community as well. But I guarantee you, your experience of the gospel will change if you join a platform, you don't know anyone, everyone is on church, and you have to think how to reach them, how to love them and care for them. The first mark of a worthy ministry, are we in a spot that requires boldness in God? Let's move on. Now, verse 3, it also tells us another accusation uh, that Paul received. Thessalonica, if you remember Jason's map, is in the middle of a famous highway called the Ignatian Way. When you are on a highway on a central region, you attract different cultures into the city, right? When you have multiple cultures, you have multiple religions. Now it's interesting because many of these religions were missional-minded. But their motive was to go to a group of people, take everything they can from them, and move on to another group and do the same thing. Paul's haters were saying, Paul was like that as well. He's a greedy guy. He's trying to take everything from you. So this is what Paul said. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God, who tests our hearts, for we never came with words of flattery. As you know, nor with a pretext of greed, God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now the big reflection point is very clear. I've highlighted it here. Are we pleasing men or are we pleasing God? Again, I'm reflecting of this and I apologize if I'm using myself as an example because it's about motive. I don't know all the motives, but I can know mine. And I realize as I served in the church for over 10 years, many times it's not because of pleasing God. I remember my first ministry was in the worship team. I served as a bassist. And I thought, oh, if I serve in the worship team, it's quite cool, maybe people like me, maybe got girls who like me, I don't know. But I chose the wrong instrument, nobody know what bass is playing, right? <laughs> and I was really horrible. So, but that was my motive. No. And I remember serving in campus ministry. How I decided to serve was one day we were in a car, so it was three of my friends, and they said, oh, they are going for call meet. And I was thinking, I don't want to be left behind, la. I also want to go for call me. And I started serving campus ministry. It's funny, but I did not start out to want to please God. And I realised even now, as I am supposed to be maturing in God, I realised many of my language is still always about myself. If pastor asks me to do this, my response will be, I like this, I don't want to do this, this is difficult for me, I'm not good in this. It's always about me. Have I asked, what is it that pleases God? And I realized what I'm good at is this. I'm not good at pleasing God. I'm good at pleasing myself within a boundary that I think is pleasing to God. Now follow me. My way says, if this whole thing is pleasing God, these three things pleases me as well. I'm going to do these three. And I tell others I'm pleasing God. Pleasing God is saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I like it, I don't like it, I seek to please you. That's a world of a difference. And I want you to help me. And I'm going to help you. We'll help each other the next time a leader or a pastor comes to us. On top of asking questions, the practical questions that we always ask, let us add this question. What is it that's pleasing to God? Can we do that? Second mark, serve in a way that's pleasing to God. Now let's move on very quickly. This part, Paul talks about the love for the church, his love for the church, and I'm gonna read it to you. But we were gentle among you. He likens himself to a mother, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous, Or another version says, I so loved you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. I realize that the way we use love in our generation is often very different from how the Bible uses it. How we use love is like this. I fall in love with that girl and I want to date her exclusively and take her for myself. I like this burger so much, I love it that every day I have to eat it. I love this K-pop group BTS that I need to attend all their concerts and buy all their merchandise so maybe they will notice me. The world has perverted the use of love. It's about taking. Whenever the Bible uses, says the word love, it's always about the giving of oneself. It says here, Paul shared himself with them. And if you read the verse below, for you remember, brothers, our labor and talk, we work night and day. He gave himself that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. When we serve, are we driven by love? In seminary, this is one topic that we talked about greatly. How do we know if our serving is out of love? And my professor said this, every time you serve, take a pause. Are you thinking about yourself or are you thinking of others? For example, I'm going to seminary. If I'm thinking about myself so I can be more credible, so people think that I'm smart, I should repent. And I ask God to shift my heart. Lord, how can I take what I've learned and what I experienced to share it with my church? If I'm preaching up here and all I'm concerned is am I talking well, am I funny, am I looking good? I should repent. Lord, shift my heart. How am I helping the church here encounter you? And it's the same for everything. If you're an usher and all you're thinking is uh, do I look good today? Am I confident? Will people think I'm awkward? Shift your thinking. Ask God to help you. Think about others. How can I help them feel warm as they step into the church? Same for the worship team. You're thinking, am I singing in tune, blah, blah, blah? Think about how can I help the congregation use me as an example to worship you? And you get the gist. Imagine if all of us start making that shift from thinking about ourselves to thinking about the people around us. Now that's love. One of the people that I met, his ministry... It's about opening his home, and they call it an open house policy. So he would welcome anyone or orphans into his home and consider them as sons and daughters. There was a group of people, a mother with five children, I believe, who begged him to adopt the children. There are many details I cannot reveal, but he adopted them, fed them, gave them a shelter, gave them finance. Years later, the relationship turned sour and the daughter raised a court case against him. If you are thinking about yourself, this is what you'll do. I've already done my part. I fed her. I financed her. She's an adopted daughter. She doesn't want It's okay, I give up. I have other daughters anyway. This is what he said. She's my daughter. I am not going to give up on her. And he sat in the courtroom, daughter accusing him. The only thing in his mind, how can I reconcile with this daughter? That's love. That's thinking about others ahead of ourselves. That is driven by love. Last part. Paul here talks about the church that he has raised up the fruits that he had born. And if you see here, he likens himself to a father. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He used all kinds of ways to encourage them. He pleaded with them, he challenged them, he charged them, he guided them, but it wasn't only vocal. He himself led that life. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. In other words, while asking others to live in a life that was worthy, he himself first lived a life that was worthy. And look what happened. For you, brothers, the church here became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Paul likened the church here not only to himself, not only to the fellow apostles, but also to Jesus. And look at this. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus and His coming? Is it not you? For you are our joy, glory and joy. Paul was saying, when the Lord Jesus comes eventually, he's not going to tell Jesus how much money He made or how many sermons He preached or how much He knows. He's going to tell them, Jesus, These are the people that I have brought to you. That is the glory and joy. The marks of a worthy ministry bears fruit. It's not meant for us to walk alone or go through the motions alone. It's meant for others to come alongside us, stand with us, share the same load. And I know... Many of our concerns are, is this person equipped enough? Is he ready? And those are valid concerns. But I'll share with you a story that Pastor Steve Marrow, our founder of Every Nation, he shared with us. This was the first church he planted in Manila. So they were there on a one-month missionary trip. And every day, Pastor Rice Brooks, the co-founder, he would preach the gospel, and Pastor Steve's job is to, at the end, go up and pray for the people, and then lead them to a room where he explain the gospel and challenge them. Now you start reading the book of Mark. So that was his role. Three weeks into the mission trip, now every day they are preaching, yeah? So people got saved and so on. Three weeks in, they realize they're going to leave. And on the last day of the third week, they call in the people, who were saved previously. And they said, tomorrow, Pastor Rice is going to preach, but I'm not going to be the one up there praying for people, you are. And the people got shocked, but I'm only three weeks old, some only two days. And he asked them, where are you in the Gospel of Mark? Some say chapter six, you are six chapters ahead. Some say chapter three, you are chapter three ahead. You're three chapters ahead. Some said, I'm already in X, well, high performer. You are very far ahead. You are the senior already. And they stood up there the next day and they prayed for the people. Now, were they ready? Maybe not. Was the prayer good? Probably not. Was the church better? Definitely yes. Because after they left, these people continued. Now that is how a worthy ministry looks like. I want you to see this. Verse seven, when Paul was in Thessalonica, he acted like a nursing mother, right? Taking care of the children. He acted like a father, encouraging them, guiding them, setting examples, exhorting them. Two years later, He calls them a brother. The walk of discipleship is not for one to be always the father and mother and the others remain the children. We love Pastor Tim as our father, and we have Mother Teresa. (laughs) But that's not, the design is not for them to always be that. It's for me to be able to say to Teresa, I am your brother. It's not for your life group leader to always be the shepherd and you the sheep. It's for you to step up and share the load of your life group leader. The question today, will you be a brother? Can I have the musician? We're going to end with a time of communion. And today as we take communion, while we remember the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we're going to take it with this question as a lens. Wow, how am I doing this? The bread was first used as a symbol during the Passover. It was a symbol of redemption when Jesus Christ said that His body was the bread or the bread was His body. It was a symbol of the ultimate redemption. And we are so grateful, don't we? But there are many out there who has not received this redemption. As we take the bread, ask ourselves, am I going to be a brother and take part in this redemptive plan? The cup or the wine represents the blood of Jesus. It's a representation of the new covenant so that now we can have a new relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? The Creator of the heavens, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, now we can have a relationship with Him but there are many who have not experienced this relationship. As we take the cut, let us ask ourselves, am I going to play a part in bringing people into this new covenant, into this new relationship? You know, if we want to take hold of what God has for the church, the unprecedented harvest that He has promised to us, if we want to be faithful to His call, it takes more than Pastor team. It takes more than the pastoral. It takes every one of us, you and I, to become a brother. A brother shares the load. A brother shares the mission. A brother shares the inheritance that God has for us. So Father, as we come today, as we seek to live lives that are worthy, as we seek to serve in a manner that is worthy. Lord, help us to step out and put ourselves in uncomfortable spots because we want to experience that bonus in you. Help us to choose to please you instead of ourselves. Help us to die to ourselves and love others and help us to become brothers, brothers that will raise other brothers. And Lord, we so look forward to what you have for our church, not for our own glory, but of the people that still need you. Man. Lord, we commit this unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.